Okay, we'll get into another psalm here in just a minute, but before we do, I want to read you Hebrews chapter 13, just because it's such an uplifting passage. It's the last chapter in the book of Hebrews, and uh, uh, it's just got some nice wisdom for us. It'll take a minute to get through. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. I'm going to not insert too many commentaries into here lest we spend all day on this chapter but i would like to say that i do believe in angels and i do believe that we have angelic visitations and these are there to lead us to an understanding of our relationship with god god's not checking us out so that he can find something out about us he already knows everything about us but he does send angels into our presence they appear as people and for whatever reason afterward we may have an understanding that was an angel and how did I treat that being when they were here? You hear of people, you know, uh, they're, they're sinking out in the waters and uh, suddenly a hand pulls them out of the water and they're up on the shore and they have no idea how that happened. Um, you may see people that are uh, at a traffic light and they get in an accident and something happened that uh, around them that brought them to an understanding that there was an angel there. I do believe these things. The Bible proclaims it. I don't believe the angels come and speak to us directly, though, and say, I'm an angel and I've got a word from God from you. We have God's word right here, and I believe that this is all sufficient for our doctrine and our life. But I do believe that angels come and tend to our needs at times, and we need to be ready to uh, respond to that. He also says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away, carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Sacrifices in the Bible are something that die. But in this case, we give a sacrifice to God with our lips and praise, and he accepts that as if it is our own death. That's how much praise means to God. And what he's saying is just praise God all the time. When you're walking down the street and you see a beautiful flower, praise God. When you see a child smile, praise God. When you remember the food that you had for your breakfast, praise God. In everything, praise God, and it becomes a sacrificial offering to God that he does accept. So keep that in mind. Uh, verse 16, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. 
Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. The word of the Lord from the book of Hebrews. And we have one more thing to read here. Sina, if she can read uh, Psalm 8. And uh, then we'll go ahead and get into the sermon. And you've already got that, so. Uh, Psalm 8 is the glory of God in creation. It's to the chief musician, and it's a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and all oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Okay, one of the things, this has nothing to do with anything that uh, we're going to be talking about today. It has something to do with what we talked about last week. And uh, I just have to mention this because if you know how I am, I don't care when I was preaching out at Grace Baptist or uh, going around the nation a couple years ago and preaching at the state capitals or wherever I am, the one thing that I want people to do is to read and study their Bible. And when people do that, and I know they do that, it, I can't tell you what it means to me personally, especially when they hear something in a sermon and they say, I want to follow through with it. And I don't want this to be cut out, so I'm not going to say who did this, because if I put somebody's name in here, it's bound to be chopped out of the uh, video. But uh, one of the people that attends church on the beach, last week I brought up um, the, uh, the manner of speaking, which is by our lip and by our words. And um, uh, there are two separate concepts for speech, which were brought into uh, focus during the Tower of Babel. And the words, or in Hebrew, devarim, are mentioned over 900 times in the Bible. And somebody had his wife out uh, over the past couple days. She was doing something. She was busy doing something. And he sat down and studied all 900 of those times that it was mentioned in order to understand more appropriately what God was saying not just about the Tower of Babel, but how it weaves through the whole Bible. And I have to tell you, he did this not only in English, but he also did it in Hebrew, and he did it in context. And I thought, I cannot think of a better way of spending your time than studying God's Word, and especially doing a study like that. So if you would just take the time, if there's one point, I mean, I know that I give like 18,000 points in a sermon, and it gets overwhelming. If you would just focus on one point and say, I want to look at that this week, you will not only find that you are blessed and that the Lord is pleased with what you're doing, but if you let me know that, I will be so happy. My hair's standing up just thinking about it because I want people to do their own studies and not to simply listen to me or any other pastor because that's when you get into error, as we've seen week after week after week. You trust what somebody says, and they say, well, this is in the Bible, and you find out it's not. So don't do that. Please research these things yourself and do your own studies and just find a point during the... the uh, the sermon, whether it's here or on TV or wherever you're watching a sermon, and use that throughout the week, studying it when you have time. And I think that you will be blessed for that. 
Uh, every week I bring in a couple things that happened on this day in history. We know that Mother's Day happened on this day in history. Uh, something happened in 1607. Anybody know what happened in 1607? And just, Cena knows. I see her shaking her head, yes. Um, 1607 in Jamestown, Virginia was settled. Okay, it became the first permanent settlement in the United States. And just a few days earlier, on 26 April of 1607, they landed at Cape Henry, and Chaplain Robert Hunt offered a prayer, and they set up a cross. And that was the establishment of what was going to continue on into being the United States of America. And how far we have fallen in this nation when we can no longer put up a cross anywhere without somebody having an offense at it. And the thing that never ceases to amaze me is how somebody can be offended at something they don't believe in. If they don't believe the cross has any power, then why should they care if it's up or not? But that is the moral state that we're in in this nation, and we are quickly getting that to the point where it is going to become not just morally offensive, but it will be physically attacking against Christians. And I, I see that coming very quickly, is that Christians are going to be physically harmed in the, the days ahead, just like they are all around the world. In 1865, something happened in South Brownsville, Texas, at the Palmito Ranch on this day. Anybody know what happened? South Pal at the Palmito Ranch, it was the final engagement of the Civil War. And of course, in that war, over 600,000 people died, the bloodiest war in American history. And somebody had to be the last person to die in that battle. And it was a person named Private John J. Williams of the 34th Indiana. And, you know, if they had stopped that war one day earlier, he would have gone home to his mother or wife or whoever he had to go home to. And that didn't happen for him. And each one of us is going to get in our car and we may start it up and get out on the midnight pass and get hit and die. So these are things that we have to continually think about as we're living our life. We may not have our next moment. For this man, he didn't have his last moment. And because of that, it is, some, it is the most important thing in our life is to focus on God while we are alive and to devote our thoughts and our attention to him. Please don't forget that as you go out throughout the, your life, especially I think Sarah's the youngest person here. You know, it looks like you have a long life ahead of you, but I knew people much younger than you in school that just died. You know, I knew one uh, uh, when I was in uh, first grade, a guy that I went to school with, his name was Dwayne. I still remember it. He was run over, you know, while playing on the way, waiting for the bus. We don't know when our moment is going to come. So please think on God always. Think on God always. Focus on him, meditate on him, and study his word because there is an eternity that will be rewarded and will be based on the life we are living now. So please keep that in mind. One other thing happened in 1906 in Jerusalem. The Bezalel Art School opened. This is in 1906, before the uh, Jewish state actually became uh, a nation. Um, does anybody know where the name Bezalel comes from? I'll give you a hint. Anybody know where Bezalel comes from? It comes from the Bible. Um, Bezalel means in the shadow of God, and I just thought I'd read this for it to you. It comes, uh, he's mentioned several times in the Bible, but we're just going to read a little bit about him right here. Um, this is from Exodus 31. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. So Bezalel is remembered even to this day in Jerusalem as the man that 
was the, the impetus behind the construction of all of the implements of the tabernacle out in the wilderness. Actually, God, the Spirit of God, is the impetus behind it, but he uses man Bezalel. Now, this is something I was thinking about this morning as I was looking at this and reading about Bezalel, is that despite being filled with, filled with the Spirit and the wisdom of God, he did not enter the promised land. If you remember, only two people entered the promised land, and that was Caleb and Joshua. Everybody else died in the wilderness for disobedience and rebelling against God. And I had never thought of that until this morning when I was thinking about this guy. Despite being filled with the spirit and wisdom and the knowledge of God and being used by God, he was one of the people that rebelled against God. So we need to be on guard even in ourselves you know we have the spirit of god residing in us if we have called on jesus christ as lord but it doesn't mean that we can't fall away and you know our rewards once again our losses once again are based on our life now so keep that in mind bezalel a great man of god but a failing man of god just like we all are in one way or another or woman of god um so there you go that's a little history on this day in history now, in the past few weeks, we have left Noah, and we've left the flood behind, and we've traveled over to Babel, which is Babylon, and we have seen how the world moved away from God and towards a false religious system. This week, the Bible is going to back up to a date before that time, and it's going to list the line of Shem, and about halfway through the list of that names, it catches up with the story of Babel when we get to Shem's great, great, great grandson named Peleg. Eventually today, we're going to arrive at the great hero of the faith, both of Jews and of Christians, Abraham. Before we jump into the Bible, though, I want to tell you just a little bit about Ur, which is where some of Shem's descendants moved to. And it is south of Babylon in Iraq, where it is today. It's the land that Abraham was called out from, and by the time he had left Ur, false religion had completely taken over that place. It was a city in Mesopotamia, midway between where Baghdad is and the head of the Persian Gulf. And in ancient times, the Euphrates River ran right by it. It doesn't run there anymore because it was diverted many centuries ago. But it ran by there, and because it did, it controlled the outlet to the sea. And so it was favorably located for the development of both commerce and for attaining political dom dominance in the area. It was the principal city of the Sumerian god goddess named Nana. And there are three known dynasties that came from the area. And even from their earliest days, they had set up their own deities. And when I say their earliest days, it's really, if you look at the account, it goes right back to the time of the flood. I mean, these people had that quickly turned away from God. The oldest dynasty, which actually goes right to the time of the flood, built a temple to the goddess Nernhursak. And it was from this land that Abraham received his call with his family, and they moved out to a land that God would grant him and his descendants forever, the land of Canaan, which today is known as the land of Israel. The names that we are going to go through in the next 30 minutes are listed without almost without any commentary at all, but they're important for a few reasons. First, they continue to establish the line of people who will eventually become the people of Israel and lead us to the Messiah, Jesus. And they also continue to provide dating for the age of the world. And we know when things have happened so that we can tell both how long ago this people lived and how long from the time of creation they lived. 
So the verses like these and the others that we're going to look over are the only records on the face of the earth of these people who lived at that time. And yet, surprisingly, they are in the most printed document in all of human history. So you can see how marvelous, marvelously and mysteriously God works in humanity. He said, I'm reserving this information for my Bible alone, and yet the Bible is printed all over the world in thousands of languages and is printed again and again and again. Keep reading, keep reading. I'm telling you something. And boy, we shun it at our own peril. Our text verse for today comes from John 8, 56 through 58. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. From the beginning, Jesus was, and he always will be. Even before the great man of faith, Abraham existed, Jesus Christ is. The entire Bible speaks of the person and of the work of Jesus Christ. And so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought of the day is the generations of Shem. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. This is Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 and 11 that I just read. This is now the fifth set of generations or genealogies that the Bible has given us. So far, we've seen the generations of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 2. We've seen the generations of Adam in Genesis 5. We've seen the generations of the Noah in Genesis 6, and then the generations of the sons of Noah in Genesis 10. And now we're going to further refine God's workings in human history by looking at the generations of Noah's second son, Shem. The flood of Noah ended in the year 1657 from creation. We, we use the term Anno Mundi. And so Shem was 100 years old in the year 1659 when his son Arphaxad was born. After Arphaxad was born, Shem lived 500 years and so he died in the year 2159 Anno Mundi. Now if you notice from the time of Shem going down, the lives of the people are going to get progressively shorter and each of their first recorded children will come at an earlier age as well. Some of the old uh, people in the Bible had children, their first one at 115 years old or something, and then eventually it was 60, and then it got down to 30, and then they get down into their 20s. Shem is the last person who is going to live to be over 600 years of age. He lived long after Abram was born, which was 10 generations later, which is simply amazing if you look at it from our world perspective of today. Verse 12, Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad was born in the year 1659 from creation and he had Salah in the year 1694. Arphaxad died in the year 2097 at 438 years of age. Verse 14, Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah was born in the year 1694, and he had Eber in the year 1724. Salah died in the year 2127 at 463 years of age. Now, before I go on, I want to tell you, and I'm going to make this point again, these verses 
seem dull maybe or a little dry. Why are we recording all of this? But I can tell you that they are very important for several reasons and it's it's good to have these on record as far as the date these dates and particularly I was thinking about this rather than skipping through these quicker is because a lot of people do watch this around the world and I know that some of them make a lot of notes off of what Sergio puts on film on YouTube and by having those notes you will be able later later in the Bible to reference all of these different things they may seem unimportant individually but when you get to other stories and you go back and you see how these things work together they actually make really beautiful patterns now I had read the Bible probably 10 or 12 times before I started getting into the dating the first few times I was just overwhelmed with the beauty of it but eventually I wanted to start putting these things down into numbers and so if you go through my original Bible that my mom gave me there are just numbers all over. I've got years and I've got how many days old was Noah at this time and how many days old was Noah at this time and how many years old was this person at this time and eventually you start to see really amazing things in there. So by putting these dates in here for anybody that's watching on YouTube and is writing these down eventually they will come to some very great understandings and when they come to something that I haven't said boy I would hope that they would tell me because there's nothing I like more than learning details from the Bible. Anyway verse 16 Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber was born in the year 1724, and he had a son Peleg in the year 1758. He died in the year 2188 at 464 years of age. He is the last person who would live to be more than 450 years of age, and in fact, he is the last person that would live to be more than 300 years of age. So you can see how quickly man's years are going to drop after the flood. The name Eber comes from the Hebrew word which means one from beyond or he who crossed over. And his name, as I said last week, is where the word Hebrew comes from. Eber was alive at the divisions of the languages and he was certainly the father of the family that maintained the original language of the earth, which we call Hebrew, even to this day. Because his name means he who crossed over, and it's recorded that his descendants lived in Ur, which is on the opposite side of the Euphrates from Babylon, it's probable that he and several of his generations moved away from Babylon to Ur sometime after the fall of the Tower of Babel. Now, the reason why I say this is because in Genesis chapter 14, we will see the word Hebrew used for the very first time when speaking about Abraham. Abraham is the man who crossed over the Euphrates and away from the area of Babel. So it's likely that Eber was with him because he lived until 2188 and Abraham was born in 2009, 179 years before Eber died. So this group of people with this special language, the Hebrew language, are the ones that crossed over the Euphrates as guided by God's divine hand. And in Joshua 24.2, we read that Abraham's father, who will be introduced just a little later, his name is Terah, lived on the other side of the Euphrates and worshipped other gods. Here's what it says. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Abraham, being a Hebrew, certainly 
crossed the Euphrates with several generations of his fathers, including Eber. Or Abraham was the first born on the other side of it. Either way, that's where the term comes from. Now, I brought this up and I want to, I was thinking about this this morning as well, so I'm going to get a little lengthy here, but it's kind of interesting, is that in the Bible, if you go to Revelation chapter 11, there are what are known as the two witnesses. And if you've ever studied that, you know that there are two people that are coming back during the tribulation period, which I believe is very soon in world history, and they are going to witness to the world for three and a half years. And at the end of that time, they're going to be killed, and then they're going to be resurrected and taken up to heaven in sight of the whole world. And I was thinking about that this morning, and we can have a very good idea of who these two witnesses are based on the name of this guy, Eber. And I don't know anybody else that's ever come to this conclusion, but I believe that it's valid. A lot of suggestions have been made as to who these two witnesses are. Some people say it's Moses and Elijah. Well, it can't be because Moses died. And it says in the book of Hebrews, it is appointed for man to die and then the judgment. We only get one death and then we go on to glory. Okay. Other people have suggested John the Baptist. Once again, he had his head lopped off. It is not John the Baptist. So Elijah is a very good guess. But there is one other person, and I brought him up, and other people have brought him up as well. His name is Enoch. And the reason why is because Enoch and Elijah are the only two people in human history that never died. They're both recorded as being translated directly to heaven. Okay, And throughout the Old Testament, two people keep showing up with the Lord as he does certain things. And in the New Testament, two people are there with the Lord at certain times, like at the Ascension. Jesus is there and two people are standing there and they say, men of Jerusalem, why are you looking up to heaven? The same Jesus that went up to you, you know, is going to come back to you in the same way. I know that's a misquote, but um, they, uh, they are standing there talking to him. Now, Jesus went up to heaven in a cloud and it says that these two witnesses are also going to go up to heaven in a cloud. And it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that at the rapture, we will all meet the Lord in the clouds. So you see the symbolism is all the same. But why do I think for certain that it is Enoch and Elijah. Well, here's my thoughts on this, and this comes from Daniel 12, verse 5. And I was reading this probably for the millionth time, and I stopped because I said, now why does it say that? It says in 12, 5, then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and one on that riverbank. And from that one verse, I do believe that it confirms that it's Enoch and Elijah. And the reason why is because the Lord who we know as Jesus, is standing above the waters. And on one side is one person and one side is another person. Well, Enoch lived before the time of Eber. Okay? He was a Gentile. Elijah lived after the time of Eber. He is a Jew or a Hebrew to cross over. And that's why that verse is in there is to let us know that there is a person that had not crossed over and one that had crossed over. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in because I was thinking about this morning as I was getting ready to come over here. So we have the fact that the Hebrews are the ones who have crossed over. We get to verse 18. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ryu. After he begot Ryu, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg was born in the year 1758, and he had Ryu, his son, in the year 1788. Peleg died in the year 1997, and that doesn't mean 20 years ago. That means 1997 from creation, at the age of 239 years of age. He died 191 years before his father Eber and nine years before his great, great, great grandfather Noah. 
Yes, Noah was still alive at the time of Peleg. Peleg is the last person in this line of Shem who was mentioned in the last chapter, chapter 10, the Table of Nations. He was listed with his brother, Joktan. And Joktan's sons were mentioned, but not Peleg's. And if you remember at that time, I talked about God's funnel, how God is working in the Bible with a funnel that is pointing to one person and one event in human history. And then little side branches come off. Joktan was a side branch. Joktan is no longer relevant to the story. And so in this line, in the line of Shem in chapter 11, it focuses on Peleg and those who come after him. He is the one that becomes the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Peleg's name means division. And during his lifetime, as I explained last week, the world was divided by languages. From the time of Peleg on, the world has moved out in many directions. And the languages that have come about are as varied and as difficult to understand today as they were at that time. People dispersed because of the confusion of the languages. Verse 20, Ryu lived 32 years and begot Serug. After he begot Serug, Ryu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Ryu was born in the year 1788 and he had his son Serug in the year 1820. Ryu died in the year 2027 at 239 years of age. Verse 22, Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Serug was born in the year 1820, and he had a son Nahor in the year 1850. He died in the year 2050 at 230 years of age. Nahor, verse 24. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. This guy Nahor was born in 1850, he had a son, Terah, in the year 1879, and Nahor died in 1998 at the age of 148. You see how quickly their lives are shortening up. This was 22 years before his father, Sarag, and guess what? It was eight years before his great, 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 great grandfather, Noah. Yep, Noah is still alive at this time, nine generations later. Terah was born during the time of Noah and his grandfather, his father Nahor died before the death of Noah. The environment of the post-flood world, in other words, is very harsh on humans in comparison to the pre-flood world. And this harshness has a cumulative effect. In other words, we have Noah. He was 350 years alive after the flood. He lived to uh, 950, I believe, all right? And each generation after him their life gets shorter and shorter. So whatever affects human beings is something that is passed on from the next generation. It's not just an environmental condition. And I have a feeling that if the doctors of the world looked at medicine from that perspective, they would be able to deal with the problem of aging much better because the Bible tells us this in these verses. Noah lived, he outlived many of the people who came after him. And the incredible thing to me about Noah is to think of all of the turning away from God that occurred since the time of the flood. All of the people on the earth, every single one of them came from Noah. In other words, here's this guy and he's sitting out in his little plantation, you know, drinking his wine, and there are people all over the world and all they had to do if they wanted to know if the story of God was true and the story of the flood was true was just simply go and ask grandpa. But the Bible shows us that people like Nimrod rejected this. 
and they went out and they fought against God and they tried to do things their own way. And the question that I would ask each one of you is, is that any different than us today? Is it? We all have God's word right here. We have what can be validated as absolute truth. I'm 100% certain of this. And yet, instead of just going to this book and checking it out for ourselves, we find reasons to reject it. Just like we won't go and check with Noah and say, Noah, did this thing really happen? You're my grandpa. Tell me the truth. Do you think he's going to lie to you? No. We are no different than the people back then, in other words. And the reason why I say this is because as you're reading the Bible, you can see Israel and they fall into apostasy and then they call on the Lord and then they fall into apostasy. And you say, how stupid are these people? But you don't realize that turning one page can often be 200 years in time. And here we are in America, having been established, as we saw a moment ago, setting crosses into the ground and praying for this nation. And all of a sudden, a couple hundred years later, we have completely departed from God. So we are no different. Here's a, a modern example from the world today. We have the Holocaust. That's a good example. We have the Holocaust. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say that the Holocaust never happened. Has anybody ever heard that? The Holocaust has never happened. We got people on the news, that guy Aminijab over in Iran. We got Chavez down in, uh, where is it, Honduras. All these people are saying the Holocaust never happened. And yet, the same time frame in human history, America dropped two atom bombs on Japan. And nobody, I have never heard anybody ever question the fact that we did that. Nobody's ever said that didn't happen. But we deny the Holocaust. Now, we can go to Japan, I've been there, and you can go to where these sites are. And there's a little bit of evidence for a nuclear bomb. They've got a building that's a little bit burned out, and everything else is just built back into a normal city. And they got some photos and they say, this is what America did. And we all say, yeah, America did this. Look at what happened. But when we go to Germany, there are not only memorials and there are not only photographs and films of what happened, but the concentration camps are still there. The ovens are still there. Everything for anyone to simply open their eyes is there. And yet people deny that this happened. And I got to tell you what, I call this a very sad human condition called peanut head-itis. And it didn't just exist during the pre-flood in the post-flood world. It exists even to this day. I'm going to define peanut headitis. It can be defined as denying that which is certain in the face of overwhelming evidence. Another good example of peanut headitis concerns the modern state of Israel. I got to tell you what, there is more than abundant evidence that there has never been in history a group of people called the Palestinians. None. There is no history of it at all. If you do your research, you can go right online and you can read the book Innocence Abroad by Mark Twain. And what he did is he went through all of the biblical lands and he got up to the north of Israel and he went down through Israel all the way to the end. And as he was there, he documented all of the people, how many people and the types of people. He documented there's this many Arabs, there's this many Jews, there's this many Christians, there's this many Armenians. Then he wrote it all down in 1869. And this is how many years, like 80 or 60 years before the establishment of Israel, and it even predates the Zionist movement. And so nobody can say that he was, you know, biased in some way. It's a completely unbiased note that he has given us. And it shows without a shadow of a doubt that the land of Israel didn't have the volumes of so-called Palestinians that they claim lived in the land. 
And there are no other historical records for this either. There was never a Palestinian government. There was never Palestinian money issued. All they need to do is bring out a Palestinian coin from 150 years ago and prove they were there. But they were not there. There's none of these things. But instead of believing the truth, they allow this terrible affliction, which is known as peanut headitis, to direct every thought and every action of their lives. And I got to tell you, though, there is a cure for peanut headitis. It's not a terminal disease by any stretch. All one needs to do is to read their Bible, to believe their Bible, and to reject the lies that are taught again and again in society, and to stand firm on God's truth and on his son, Jesus Christ. And I would hope that every person here would pursue this remedy for peanut headitis all the days of their life, and they will remain healthy, they will remain happy, and they will be content that they know the truth and that they have rejected the lies of the world. And I'll bring up the quote of Adolf Hitler. He says, if you tell a lie often enough and long enough, people will believe it. The way to stay away from this type of attitude is to simply believe God and take him at his word. Verse 26. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Avram, Nahor, and Haran. Terah was born in the year 1879. And from this point, the Bible dating gets very, very confusing. And so you really need to dig to figure things out. Here he is listed first. Abraham is listed first, but he is not the first son. We know that he's not the first son because Haran, the oldest son, died in Ur of the Chaldeans. And there's a little more information with that, which I will explain just a little bit later. Abraham is actually the second son of Terah. And once again, we see, as I brought up many sermons in a row, the doctrine of divine election taking place. We saw it when Seth replaced Cain in the line from Adam. And we saw it when Shem replaced Japheth in the line of Noah. And now we're seeing Abraham, the second son, replacing his older son, Haran. This pattern is going to continue all the way through the Bible, and it will lead us to a much better understanding of who Jesus Christ is and how things work out in this doctrine of divine election in human history. Verse 26 ends the generations of Shem, and it leads us into a new section of the biblical account, which is our next main thought of the day, which are the generations of Terah. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Avram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. This is now the sixth set of generations. I'll go through them one more time. We had Adam, we had the generations of Noah, the generations of the sons of Noah, the generations of Shem, and the generations now of Terah. One of the things that I like to do, and you've heard me say this a couple times if you've been to several of these sermons, is especially when you go through verse by verse of the Bible, is to look for keys that show us how things are happening. We just talked about one of those keys a second ago, which is divine election, the second replacing the first. But in the verse we just looked at, we see Terah mentioned, and then we see his three sons mentioned, and after that it says Haran begot Lot. Because Lot is mentioned, he's never been mentioned before, and all of these guys have their own children, we can guess that we are going to see Lot again, and that the chances are he will be showing up in a very significant way in the Bible. And because Lot is introduced now, it's probably a good time to mention, so that you can think about this for the sermons ahead, that he is probably older than Abraham. Even though he's Abraham's nephew, his older brother was born 60 years before he was born. And the way that these two people talk to each other and interact 
it's a very good guess that Lot is actually older than Abraham. Verse 28, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Haran, as I said, he was the oldest son of Terah, and I would explain that a little bit later as to how we can know that for certain. But a little later isn't yet, so you've got to wait for just a little bit later. Anyway, we here have Haran dying in Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, that's the oldest son. He died there. And before we go on, from this point in the biblical account, we can look at a couple of very interesting parallels between the line of Adam down to Noah and the line of Shem down to Avram. One line occurred before the flood and one line occurred after the flood. And these are very interesting. Noah rose above the waters of the flood in an ark. Adam was created out of the land which came out of the waters of creation. Adam ate of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and it caused a curse on his seed. Noah was drunk by the fruit of the vine which ended in a curse on his seed. Cain was a builder and he was the first to organize a culture on earth before the flood and he did it in the land of east of Eden which is where modern Iraq is today. The culture was separated from God and it led to overall wickedness in the world. Nimrod was a builder and the first to organize a culture after the flood and he did it in the land which is around where Iraq is today. The culture was separated from God and it led to overall wickedness in the world, even to this day. Noah was the 10th man from Adam and he was saved from the world of physical death by being saved from the flooding waters. Abraham was the 10th man from Shem and he was saved from the world of spiritual death in flame. The meaning of Ur, believe it or not, where he came from is flame. The Bible says there will be two destructions of the world, one by flame and one by flood. The world into which Adam was created was given the great lights of the sky for signs and for seasons. The world into which Noah arrived was given the rainbow as a sign of the covenant. In Genesis 5, before the flood, the ten generations of Adam are listed from Adam down to Noah. And this genealogy ends with the listing of Noah's three sons all of whom which would have an important uh, impact on the rest of the Bible story. In Genesis 11, after the flood, the 10 generations of the sons of Noah are given, from Shem to Abraham. This genealogy ends with the listing of Terah's three sons, all of whom which would have an important impact on the rest of the Bible story. Now these parallels are not at all obvious in the Bible, and they have to be searched for. They're put here to show us that a divine hand is behind the writings of the Bible and that God is in control of all things. And so having said that, I want to stop for a minute and I want you to think about that. If God has been in control of all of these things down to the very minutest details, both in the pre-flood world and in the post-flood world, then shouldn't that make us feel a little bit better about our own selves? Why should we assume that God, who has been in charge of everything at this point in history, would suddenly stop being concerned about every detail at this point in history? The big question, for example, during the 9-11 tax was, where is God in all of this? The answer, if you follow accounts like this, is that he is right there and he is completely aware of every single thing that happened 
and every single person that it happened to. And that same God is still in control of every single aspect of our own lives. You wake up in the morning, you say, how am I going to pay my bills? Or what's going to happen to me in this family problem I'm facing? And you think, how is this going to be resolved? And yet God was so minutely control of what happened at this point in history. You know that he is also minutely in control of your own life. Please keep that in mind. He is not unaware of your trials. He asks you not to worry about things. Jesus said that. Don't worry. He says you can't change the color of a single hair on your head. You can't add a cubit to your stature. So why worry about these other things? When our life is hopeless, when our life is out of control, going through these names, going through these dates, going through these ages, and going through these places may seem tedious. But when you reflect on it, then you can realize that God is in control and that your life really does have a good plan and a good purpose. He is not unaware of you. And if you feel like you are just an unwanted grain of sand on an infinitely long beach, please don't feel that way because he is there tending to your needs and he is leading you in your life to a point of understanding who he is and why these things are happening in your life. Romans 8.28, most people know it by heart. I don't, but I can tell you that it says all things work together for good for those who are the called uh, according to his purposes in Christ Jesus. I know I blew that, but what we do is we quote that verse and we hear it in churches all the time and people are saying, yeah, Romans 8.28, except when our own life has troubles. And all of a sudden we say, I can't trust God anymore. And we shouldn't be that way. We should be completely content with him and that he is in control of our lives. So all of these names, all of these dates, all of these things seem tedious, but there are two things for you to consider. First, I'm the one that had to sit down and type all this up. And I can tell you this was the most difficult sermon that I ever typed in my life. It was very hard because it's just names and dates and places. But secondly, he does love you enough to put these details into his word and to let you know that his hand of control is over these things. So keep that in your mind, keep that in your heart as you contemplate these particular verses which seem so hard to grasp. Why is God giving us this? It's because he loves you. All right, verse 29. Then Avram and Nahor took wives. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. The two remaining sons of Terah, Haran died, there's two remaining sons, they married their own relatives. Avraham married his half-sister Sarai. We learn later in Genesis that when we see that she is the daughter of Terah, but they have a different mother, which means Terah had more than one wife. Nahor, on the other hand, married the daughter of his oldest brother who had died, Haran, okay? And when he married her, it mentions another person, Iscah. Now, I, what I'd like you to remember is when you see a name in the Bible and there's no other information listed with that name, that name actually has a great deal of importance in the Bible. Iscah means one who looks forth. And because her name is mentioned right there along with the marriage of Nahor to Milcah, and no other significance is given with her name, most scholars, and I mean most scholars going back thousands of years, even Flavius Josephus got this wrong, they say that Sarai is Iska. it's just another name for her. So that's 
in essence, a very cheap way of resolving that problem. Oh, this girl's listed and I don't know why she's there. So they just say, it's just the same person and it's got a different name. But I can tell you that Sarai is not Iska and Iska is not Sarai. The reason why she is mentioned is that she is most probably Lot's wife. If you know the story of Lot, he went down to Sodom, Sodom got destroyed and they were taken out of there. And here's what the angels said to them. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And what did Lot's wife do? She looked back. His wife looked behind him, and she became a pillar of salt, the Bible says. Iska, or in English, Jessica, means one who looks forth. Instead of living out her name and looking forward, she looked back and she became the seasoning for many curry dishes in the Middle East for years to come. Verse 30, but Sarai was barren. She had no child. By the time these pilgrims are ready to leave Ur and head towards the promised land, Avram and Sarai knew that Sarai was barren. It's probable that all of the other people in the family had children by now, but they knew that Sarai had none. And just like the introduction of people's names into the biblical account, when we read verses like this, where a woman is barren, it will always lead to something interesting later in the Bible. For those of you who know the story of Abraham and Sarah, or Avram and Sarai before God changed their names, you know that her being barren will affect the course of all of human history, even to this day. The children of Abraham, one from Sarai and one from uh a maid, Hagar, his Egyptian maidservant, affect human history even to this day. And so when we read these things, we know how important they are. Sarai is the first person who is mentioned in the Bible who is barren, but there are going to be more. I can name a couple for you right now. We have Rebecca, we've got Rachel, we've got um, Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel the prophet, the last judge of Israel. We have the um, uh, parents of Samson. It says that Manoah and his wife, she was barren. And then there's one more in the New Testament. Can anybody name who it was? Come on. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. They were all barren and they couldn't have children. And yet God's glory is demonstrated through these people who had to wait a long time to have their own children. So stay tuned as you read the Bible and read about these barren women because you will see the beauty of God's hand working through human history and bringing children out at just the right time for these people. Verse 31, And Terah took his son Avram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Avram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. Here goes the family. They're leaving Ur. They're escaping the flame, all right? And they're heading off to spiritual renewal in the land that God is going to lead them to. And on the way to Canaan, they stop. The reason is not given why they stopped. But we can guess that maybe Terah, the father of Abraham, was just too old and he couldn't go on. So instead of going on to the land of Canaan, they established a foothold in the land and they probably named it Haran after their dead son and their dead brother. Abraham would not leave this place until his father Terah had died and only after that would he continue on to the land that was promised to them. And if you think about this guy Terah, there are so many people in the world today just like him. They come to know that there is a promised land and they know how to get there. 
and they see it off in the distance. And instead of making that final, last step, they never call on Jesus Christ and they never come into the land of promise. And I'm going to talk about that, how to know Jesus Christ in a couple minutes. But it's very sad because God doesn't make it hard on the lost sinner to call on him. He does all of the work and all he does is just ask us to call on him in faith. And then everything else he does to usher us into glory. All he wants is our simple response. Verse 32. So the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Terah was born in the year 1879. He had a son Avram in the year 2009. Terah died and Avram was called to move to the land of Canaan in the year 2084. Terah was 205 years old at his death and he is the last person recorded to live over 200 years of age. And believe it or not, his great, 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 great grandfather Shem was still alive. The first person mentioned in this genealogy when he died. A bit earlier I said that Abraham was the second son of Terah and that I had explained that a little later and now is later. So it's a bit confusing, but I want you to have this, especially for people that are making notes on this. In Genesis 12:4, which we've already read, it said that Avram left Haran to go to the promised land when he was 75 years old. His father Terah would have been 130 when he had Avram in the year 2009. Terah was 70 when he had his first child. And that means that Haran, the oldest son, was 60 years older than Abraham was. Now, the funny thing about this is that we actually need to go to the New Testament to know this. Without Acts chapter 7, this would only be speculation, but Acts chapter 7 answers this dilemma. It says, Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and went and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. Only when Terah died did God call Abraham to go the rest of the way down into the land of Canaan. And next week, we're actually going to get into the account of Abraham, and it becomes a narrative again. It's not this, you know, difficult verse after difficult verse after difficult verse. It becomes a nice narrative story, and it's much easier to work through. But Abraham is one of the greatest heroes of the Bible. He's mentioned all the way through the Bible, through the Psalms, through Jesus, through all the New Testament writers. And yet this guy had his own failings, and he had his own failures. And that should help you to believe that despite your own failings and despite your own failures, God can and he will use you if you will simply follow him. If you will simply go in his footsteps, he can use you in ways that you can't imagine. So keep that in mind. I've got a poem for you here on this particular uh, passage. And if you think writing this passage was difficult, the poem was a lot more difficult. So bear with me for a couple minutes. The Generations of Shem and Terah. Shem was 100 when he begot his son named Arphaxad. It was two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, 500 more years he had, and other sons and daughters received his lifeblood. Arphaxad lived 35 years and he begot Salah, his son, and then Arphaxad lived 403 years more. After he, he added other sons and daughters before his race was run, and then Arphaxad stepped through eternity's door. Salah lived 30 years, and then came Eber, a baby boy. Salah then added another 403 years, just like his dad. During that time, more children came to give him joy, and he kicked off at 433, thinking life wasn't that bad. 
Eber was 34 when along came Peleg, which means division, and we continue to follow the line recorded with such precision. After having Peleg, Eber lived 430 years more, and he had other children before knocking on heaven's door. Peleg lived 30 years before he begot Ryu, his son, and then another 209 years Peleg continued to live. And during Peleg's time came many languages instead of just one, and so the people spread out as if having God through a sieve. Ryu's son Serug came when he was aged 32 years. When he saw his son, he was surely filled with joyful tears. After Serug arrived, Ryu lived 207 years more, and other sons and daughters were added to his store. Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor, Avram's grandpa, and then Serug lived 200 years after that birth, and other sons and daughters Serug in his life saw, and he kicked the bucket after 230 years of mirth. Nahor had his son Terah when he was just 29, and little Terah probably made Nahor's face shine. And other sons and daughters Nahor did add, and he died at 148 thinking life wasn't that bad. Terah begot Avram, Nahor, and Haran in the land of Ur, and Haran begot Lot, which made him happy for sure. But Haran died in his native land, and then Avram and Nahor took wives from their kin. Avram married Sarai, and Nahor took Milcah's hand. Back then, marrying your family wasn't a sin. Milcah's dad was Haran, and she had a sister, Iska by name, and Avram's wife Sarai was barren. She had no child. But the barren woman would be the one of great fame when someday on her womb, God finally smiled. So Terah took Avram and Lot and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and they headed out to Canaan. From Ur, they did withdraw. And when they came to Haran, they dwelt there until the time that Terah closed his eyes and died. He was 205 years old when they said his funeral prayer. And in the ground of Haran, his body does abide. This is the line of Shem and the line of Terah too. These lines that led to our Lord and Savior Jesus. They are recorded for us to carefully read through because God recorded them, especially for us. Hallelujah and amen. Now, I said that I'd mention how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and I try to never miss this in case somebody has heard the message of Jesus or maybe not heard it. But if they have heard it and they've never responded, you never know how long it's going to take until God calls your heart. So real quickly, let me just tell you that the Bible teaches that we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Just ask yourself, honestly, have I ever told a lie? And I don't think anybody on earth can say that they've never told a lie. And if they say they haven't, they're probably telling a lie. That one sin, just breaking one of the Ten Commandments, infinitely separates us from God. That's what it does. The Bible says that if you err on one part of the law, you've broken the whole law. Every commandment is tied up into every commandment. And that is why it's called the law of Moses. It's a unified body of laws. So when we break that one commandment and we're separated from God, we have no way of getting back to him because whatever we do is insufficient to reconcile us to him. Instead, what he did is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the law that we cannot fulfill. He lived the perfect life that we cannot live. And then he gave his own life up as a substitute offering for our own. And if we simply believe that message, that God loves us enough to send his son to the world to die in our place, having never sinned, then we will be reconciled to God through his blood. He becomes the mediator from us to God the Father. 
We are not sufficient in ourselves to speak to God, but through Jesus, our prayers are accepted. So it says, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's all that God wants you to do. He will do every single thing else to usher you into glory. So keep that in mind. If you've never called on Jesus, I would pray that you would do that today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these passages in the Bible, even the ones that are very difficult and that have just names and dates because they are listed here for our benefit. And we skip over them at our own loss and at our own peril. Thank you for allowing me to go through them despite having a lot of trouble and my tongue getting tied over all these names and dates and places and ages. I've enjoyed it so much because it continues to show us that you are in control of the ages and that you are in control of every minute aspect of our lives. And I thank you for that because my own life is always out of control with one trouble or with one trial or with one hard day or one difficult night. And yet I know when I am walking with you that despite those troubles, you are right there with me. And I thank you for that. And I would ask that you would reassure each person here as well that when they are facing their own trials, that they know that you are right there with them and guiding them in a way that will bring them to you and bring the most glory to you in the process. Thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. All hail the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.